When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first got to meet Steve Schmidt from a distance when we were opposite numbers in the 2008 presidential campaign. He is the strategist for John McCain and me for Barack Obama. I knew him then as a a fierce and incisive competitor. What I learned later when we became friends was all about the passion he brought for American history, for the country, for service. These days, Steve is known as an outspoken never-Trumper, seen on MSNBC, with rumblings that he might turn up in a Democratic campaign in 2020. I sat down with Steve before the apprehension of the Florida bomber and the tragic events in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life congregation. Our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with all the victims and their families. One other thing, Election Day is coming up on November 6th. Early voting is going on in almost every state by now that has it, whatever your persuasion. And this year's election seems particularly important. So please, get out there and vote. Steve Schmidt, I've been stalking you all these years, brother, just to get this podcast done. We're finally together here in California. We were both at the Schwarzenegger Institute today, which was fun, talking about civility and politics, which seems like a timely topic. We're going to get to that. But I want to talk about your your journey, uh, starting in North Plainfield, New Jersey, where is North Plainfield? North Plainfield. Well, first off, it's good to see you Thank always, you. David, um, and real happy to be able to finally get this done. Um, North Plainfield is a New York City bedroom community about 25 miles outside the city. The bus stopped up at the corner, and my dad would hop on it and go into New York when he worked there or to Hackensack. And it was a uh, town made up of uh, mostly... Uh, Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, the cultural center of the town was the Italian American Club. I um I remember when I was about 9 years old, I uh I asked my mother, I said, "Hey, mom, why why doesn't dad come to church with us?" And uh I said, "You know, I know he's friends with Father John. They they play in the card game together." <laughs> and my mother took a took a deep sigh and she you know, long pregnant pause and she said, "Uh said your father is a he's a protestant and i just you had no idea what that was it's you were either catholic <laughs> or jewish um it was a it was an ethnic community um where what what were the backgrounds of your parents your their family history mom was a uh teacher 
Uh, grew up in Jersey City. My dad. Well, who, but what about her folks? And where where, the, well, where did all, they all come from? Um, they, everybody came from somewhere. Grandfather on her side, Irish, bus driver. Uh, my grandmother worked in the GE factory. Um, my dad's side. Um, also in Jersey, is that where they are? They were from Bayonne, my mm-hmm. dad's side of the family. Uh, my grandfather was an interesting guy. He was a twin, and my father was a twin. Uh, my grandfather and his twin brother, uh, Bill, who jumped into Normandy with the 82nd Airborne, but both of those brothers lost their first wives and first child in childbirth. Hmm. And so my father and his twin brother were the product of a second marriage. And Uncle Bill, my grandfather's twin, who had had fought in Normandy, got polio in the early 1950s. And someone who had survived the European theater from D-Day forward spent the rest of his life in in a wheelchair. Um, But, you know, my dad... uh, uh, didn't have a college degree. Um, uh, started out uh, working for the phone company. He was a union lineman. He got promoted into management. Um, played a pretty significant role ultimately at the very end of his career as the head of Bell Atlantic's environmental protection department. Uh, you know, rose on his wits and his skills and his intellect, and uh, was deeply involved in the restoration. Uh, phone lines and phone services so Wall Street could open after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, moved to New Hampshire and ultimately became the he's a state majority rep, right? leader, uh, deputy majority leader of the New Hampshire legislature. But he's living up in New Hampshire now. And Is he still in the legislature? He's, he's finishing his last term. Uh-huh. Finishing his last term. How does he, is he uh, more comfortable in the Republican climate today than you are? Well, I, he's a he's a member of the Republican Party in in good standing. I certainly, you know, wouldn't regard him as as pro Trump. I think he represents a pragmatic northeastern Republican tradition. I think he serves honorably in a citizen legislature with more than four hundred members, where they get paid a hundred dollars a year. Um, he was involved in a, a conspiracy of sorts with Democrats when they had a, a nutso. Uh, Tea Party Speaker of the House up there that you know both sides worked together to depose him, and uh, somebody who served eight years in public service. I imagine when he was 18 years old, starting out with the phone company's alignment, he never imagined himself as the deputy majority leader of the New Hampshire legislature. Especially but, since he lived in New Jersey. Right, especially since he, <laughs> but, but my grandfather had a had a cabin up there, and going back to him. You know, he was. Where did uh, the Schmitz come from originally? Uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sound like it, but but my, but my grandfather, it's in the Depression, which was a formative story to my kids. He was the. Um, there were six kids living in a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, he was the only one with a job. Um, he was a barback, and when he wasn't working uh, behind the bar, he was uh, walking the railroad tracks, picking up coal that had. You're falling off the trains, you know, to to heat the house, to heat the to heat the apartment. It wasn't a house; it was an apartment. Projects, um, you know. So, so really, people who um, believed in the country, believed in the promise of the country. When I when I was a kid, really young, I, I said once, um, you know, well, what if I don't want to go to college? And I just remember the rebuke, the anger, my father, just the, the certitude that you you would go to college, you would you would go. Yeah. 
Do, uh, and politics, was that a... I, I read somewhere, and I needed to check this out, that the first campaign that you worked on was Bill Bradley's campaign for the Senate when you were eight years old? When I was eight years old. The first thing I ever did in politics was hand out stickers on Election Day, the weekend before canvassing for Bill Bradley and the uh, Democratic slate in North Plainfield, New Jersey, upon which uh, was one of my parents' really good friends, family friend, lifelong friends, a guy named Nick Sillos. And so Councilman Sillos... Uh, Bill Bradley at the top of the ticket, and of course he was with the Knicks. So right. why couldn't you be for anyone but Bill Bradley? Yeah, I uh, I lived through those Bradley years when I was growing mm-hmm. up in New York, and it was uh, it was fun. But um, was it politics, or was it was it the friendship, or was it the Knicks that? You know, eight years old is pretty young. I mean, I was handing out stuff for Bobby Kennedy when I was nine, so I can relate to this. I um, but. I, I fell in love with the story of the country. It was the thing that I was interested in. Um, you know, it's so far back. It's like a TV screen with partial pixelation. You you remember fragments. But it was the only thing I was ever really interested in. I, w- I was enamored by John Kennedy. My um, my mother Even though you were born saved, uh, 10 years after he was uh, elected and— my- Seven years after he died, there was a uh, there was a picture in my grandmother's house of of JFK on the wall, and my and my mother had saved all of these Life magazines, mm-hmm. uh, which I which I still have, um, and and I collected through those years. But the year in pictures, uh, the Man of the Year, the Time magazines, and going back, you know, looking at things that had been um, drawn to the stories of the World War II vets. You know, when I was born in 1970, um, you know, 20-year-olds who jumped into D-Day was, was what? I mean, they were 43, 44 years old. I'm 48 now. It's just astounding to me, the proximity uh, to those events, to that yeah. time. And I was, I was just deeply fascinated by it. You went to, uh, uh, you, you, you were a leader at school, and then you, you went to the University of Delaware. So you did go to college. I did go to college. And, uh, it took me a long time to finish. Yes, you, 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 it, 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 exactly. You, uh, you got right to the finish line there and got tripped up by some advanced math course. Uh, but were you also doing politics uh, while you were there? I had um, started working on my first campaign as a senior. Um, B. Gary Scott was running for governor of Delaware. He's a real estate mogul. It's 1992. Uh, moderate Republican running against Tom Carper. And uh, I always had great difficulty with math. Um, and later on in college, hey, why can't I do this? Was diagnosed with a learning disability called dyscalculia, which is you know, the cousin to dyslexia. And it was an experience I, I reflect back on. Um, it's the first occasion in my life where I really I tried to do something to my maximum effort. And just absolutely could not do it, could not pass this class. And um, so I said, I can stay here in an endless Groundhog Day um, or go to work and had an opportunity to work on a political campaign. And then, you know, like anyone in the business, the next one, the next one, the next one. Now, there was another. Kid. Yes, there was. I was just about to raise it. They're almost at the same time. Right. Couple years older than me, um, 
very similar background socioeconomically, uh, growing up in Wilmington, Delaware, interested in politics, a guy named David Pluff, uh, who you know very well and who I'm proud to have become friends with over the years. But David, too, uh, was three credits short of his degree at the University of Delaware, same math class. And, um, <laughs> and after the... Uh, after the election in 2008, um, I think the first public event that either of us did um, was at our alma mater. And a couple thousand people came out. We taught a class together. Uh, university uh, had really marketed itself, uh, came up with the slogan, University of Delaware, the place for politics. They had, they had both you know, leaders of the campaign on it. And um, you didn't say the place for politics, if not for math. Right. <laughs> and we, um, and uh, so, we, so we were up there, we were up there for the day, and, uh, and we became the founding fellows of a new center for political communication that ultimately uh, transitioned into becoming the Biden Center. Yeah, yeah. The vice president um, would have his papers. But at the end of the day, uh, the president of the university has us in his office, and uh, you know, gives us a drink, and David and I are there. And he goes, "Guys," he goes, I, "He goes, can I say something to the, to the both of you?" And we said, "Well, of course, anything." And he goes, "Well, we're, we're really uh, proud of both of you." The university he goes, "It's incredible." He goes, "But I got to say something." He goes, "You got, because you got to finish your degrees. You're fucking killing us." <laughs> and, he, and he said, he said, I, he said, he said, I've handpicked the best math professor in the university. He goes, we'll accommodate you online. You have to take the class. You got to do it the right way. He goes, I'm telling you. He goes, it's good for you. It's good for your kids. It's good for the university. You're three credits short. He goes, you got to finish. And so David took the class first. And, and I would check in with David. And I said, well, how's the class going? Because I knew I was taking it the next semester. And he said, it's really hard. He said, it's terrible. He said, I'm spending all this time. I'm studying math. There's like, a lot going on. I'm, I'm writing this book. And, and I did it the next semester. But we both finished. We both got A's in the class. And uh, we both had the privilege uh, of being able to graduate and at the same time give the convocation speech. Uh, That's to our efficient. graduating class. So. Did you uh, were you able to crib from him? I was talk I about was, bipartisanship. That's I was. Great. I, there was no cribbing, but <laughs> but but I was prepared. I I was filled with dread upon the occasion of starting it because I knew I knew it was not going to be an easy thing to do, and it it took an enormous amount of time. We had a place we'd go skiing out of in California, one of the great ski resorts in North America. It's a low key place, Sugar Bowl. And they would open the bar for me early before the before the lifts were. And I'd bring my computer up there, and I would Skype, uh, all ready to hit first tracks in the in in the morning, uh, with a Bloody Mary, um, with my math professor on the other line, and we slogged through it uh, from the belt room bar at Sugar Bowl, and, and ultimately <laughs> I mean, made, listen, made my way to the bachelor's degree. If you got to slog through your old, uh, right? your college math class, that sounds like the way to do it. I we think. made it, got it done. You, um, I, I, if this makes you feel any better, I almost didn't graduate because I didn't pass my freshman swimming test, mm -hmm. which was discovered on the uh, hours before I was supposed to graduate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I went and took the test, and um, which shouldn't have been that challenging, but I'm not a very good swimmer. Five laps, they kept pushing me back in the water to make me get 
through that last lap, which seems even more absurd than having to wait 20 years to take mm-hmm. your, your, your math test. This is, I've never before revealed it on the podcast. So I feel like I have this relationship with our listeners and, now and that today, they can tolerate this information. Today you swim with the grace of a Michael Phelps. <laughs> yes. Well, I did do a podcast with Michael Phelps. That's the, that's the extent of my relationship with, with Michael Phelps. You came out to Cal- you. You worked in in Kentucky. Is that right? Or I did for in an AG race, an attorney general race. One of the most colorful characters I've ever met in my life. Will T. Uh, Scott. Will T. Scott. Will T. Scott, a Vietnam veteran who ultimately becomes, I think, the associate uh, chief justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court uh, from Eastern Kentucky, uh, uh, fisherman and hunter. Uh, Green Beret in service in the Vietnam War. Remember, got to got to Kentucky, and uh, and I had arranged a deal that I was going to have my own place. And when I get picked up, I fly in, and he said, "Nah, don't worry about it." He goes, "You're going to stay with me." <laughs> and right away, so oh, shit, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and if you if you are from North Plainfield, New Jersey, um, to be in Pikeville, Kentucky, is to say. Uh, at a minimum, a bit of a culture shock. And I remember the first day, his uh, wife at the time um, was in Florida with her parents. And and that first night, we bonded by watching last year's Daytona 500 <laughs> with, a, with, a, with two cases of Budweiser in the cooler bef- in front of us. And, and, and he would stop the TV um, – and rewind it over and over again to show, can you believe that Waltrip's passing this one? Can you see the draft? And he turned the Daytona 500 into the Daytona 2000. But it was a, you know, but a, but a great guy, uh, good hearted And, and man. lubricated and, it with a couple of cases of mud. Abso- absolutely. So, um, um, you know, it's interesting that you should raise that. You were a 25-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, you're parachuting in. And, you know, I, I mean, I... I explain that uh, experience of going somewhere where you really don't know anybody and you don't know the culture of the place. A place like Kentucky has a very rich and idiosyncratic culture. Uh, so what do you do? You listen. Um, and you develop those skills. Um, you know, I think that almost everybody, I think, who's worked at the top level of American politics, I think all of us, come from a pretty similar place socioeconomically. There's not a lot of Harvard kids, not a lot of Ivy Leaguers, not a lot of real wealthy, privileged kids. Um, We all sort of come from the same place. Um, And for me, you're going to these places, you listen there's a, I think, an emotional intelligence required uh, to be successful in the business, uh, an ability to problem solve, uh, you know, a, a common sense. Um, you one my as a kid, um, one of the people in my life who most influenced me was a guy named Larry Meyer. And Larry was a scoutmaster, and I was an Eagle Scout, but. Boy Scouts were a bit different back then. You know, so all the dads, um, and these guys became lifelong friends, but 
We'd go camping once a week or on a backpack trip, and the dads, my dad included, you know, they were away from the wives for the weekend. I mean, they were loaded up with more beer, more booze out, <laughs> out into the woods. Adults had their Got fire. You their, prepared their, you for Will T. Their, Scott. Absolutely. They had, their, they had their fire, their food, and if you kids couldn't cook, you starved, right? You couldn't figure out what to do. You slept soaking wet. And I remember at 12 years old, the first backpack trip on the Appalachian Trail. And, I mean, God knows when you think about the, the equipment you have today, the boots and everything. I, I'm probably wearing some $11 pair of rawhide, nylon, I, who knows what boots, feet are bleeding, blisters. And we're three miles into this 15-mile backpack. We're all crying, sitting down. The packs are too heavy. And I remember saying, I just want to die. And Larry, and Larry Meyer um, saying, okay. And he, and he took his backpack off and he took out a spade. And he said, make sure you dig the hole deep enough. <laughs> and so it was... Man, you know, I, this makes was, me really... I'm sorry that I missed the whole Eagle Scout it experience. Was, it, really sounds, it was. really sounds like but fun. You, but you, um, but you know, that Boy Scout troop, you know, is you... You were you were accountable. You were out on your own on the weekends. You were in charge of stuff. If you know the if there was you failed the inspection after breakfast on the cook the grill and you're the patrol leader, well you're doing push-ups. And you know it was just a it was a real formative experience. So about, so parachuting in right. was not something that uh, intimidated you. But the other thing you said is really important, which is the emotional intelligence piece of it and the listening piece because you know I came out of journalism when I went into politics and I had been a journalist for 10 years before I went into campaigns but I've always thought I always thought there was a seamless uh, a seamless thread between the two because I always thought of myself as a storyteller when you're in communications in a campaign you're a storyteller. You know, you you need to know which stories are relevant, which stories are going to um, make the point you want to make. But it's important to be able to glean the stories and have an interest in people's and stories. And that was, that was the thing for me. And I was so interested in it in the sense that and this was the this was where Loretta Lynn grew up, right? This was coal miner's daughter country. Um I wanted to go into a coal mine and see what it was like. Um, this was the home county of the Hatfields and McCoys. Um, there were bootleggers and moonshiners, and there was a proud Republican tradition in that this was the part of the state, along with West Virginia, that was fiercely Union, fiercely anti-slavery, Scots-Irish, um, I was fascinated by the stories that range back in this county to Daniel Boone. Uh, Will T. Scott's family, and it was fascinating. You take these papers out where, as they accumulated land, and his family back in pioneer days had been the concessionaire. They had the store, and he showed me the deeds where from heaven high to hell deep, from the edge of the holler to the big oak tree, this land is seeded for two eggs, a chicken, and a <laughs> shovel with X marks the spot. And they still had all of these promissory notes, and all of the same families lived in the same place over the whole 
course from pioneer days to forward. I just I found the culture fascinating. I found the stories fascinating. I found the differences in the diversity in the culture of the country because as someone who grew up in North Jersey, right, that's a unique culture in and of itself. And to have an opportunity over my 20s as an itinerant campaign worker before I get to California to have grown up in New Jersey but be in Pikeville, Kentucky, living in the Daniel Boone Motor Inn, literally between two hookers who worked the road with the coal trucks coming through. And as I'd be going to work and they'd be coming home and you'd say good morning and on your way or to Sylacauga, Alabama or points north and south, they really got to see the country yeah. and cross the country many times in a car in which all of my possessions existed. Uh, there's so much I want to pursue with you, and I'm going to have to accelerate because I want to get to some of the issues that we were uh, discussing before. He lost, by the way, I guess, to Ben Chandler, is he that did. Right? who was, what, the grandson of Happy Chandler, was who was grand- the commissioner of baseball? Who's the commissioner of baseball who integrated baseball. Right. And, and Happy Chandler had one of the great debate lines of, of all time. He refused to debate his opponent, and, and the reason why he said, you can tell that dumb son of a bitch to go get his own publicity. <laughs> you, uh, you, you came out to California and uh, worked on a, a brave thing uh, in the 90s, by the 90s, after 94, really, when Proposition 187 passed, California Republicanism became a lot more challenging. You worked on some statewide uh, races, made a, really, uh, a, a contact with Nicole Wallace. That was your, that's where your friendship and partnership uh, of many years uh, began. And, then, and, and she, I, did, was she the one who brought you to Washington? No, I was in I was in Washington um, when I ultimately she brought you wound up the, working, you know, on the on the Bush campaign. But I had been the communications director at the House the R, campaign R, committee, R, yeah, right. And I had been the communications director at the House Commerce Committee, which for me was like going to graduate school. This is the place where I learned how Washington worked, um, how. Uh, Special interests intersected with the public interest. I remember being in meetings uh, at the intersected or interdicted. Well, and it, I remember being astounded by it. Well, what does AT and T think? Mm-hmm. What does MCI it think? Is, it what is, is it is amazing? And it was and it was jarring uh, when you first saw the reality um, of all of it. And it it it, it was a masterclass because anything that pertains to anything of importance flows through that House Commerce Committee. But in California, um, I worked for the highest elected Asian American uh, in the country at the time, Matt, Matt Fong, Fong, yes, who was the son of a legendary Democratic politician, uh, Marge Fong Yu, in the state of California. Uh, Matt was an Air Force Academy graduate. Um, but it was a race that was a big race for me in my career and I think got me my first level of attention um, because we defeated Daryl Issa, who was running for the U.S. Senate. And Daryl Issa had sent, spent $14, 15000000 million in the race, which is an astounding amount of money 
personal money at the time to our two and a half million, and we took him out. Um, and uh, Matt Fong, um, and at the top of the ticket was Dan Lundgren. You know, Matt lost the race That's by who Nicole 10 points, was and for. that was who Nicole was working for. But that, that experience for me was most meaningful is that, you know, you go through life and you have these random encounters and you meet people along life's journey. And, you know, for me in California, you know, that's one of the most important relationships in my life. You know, a person who would go on, you know, to occupy a space in my life really like a sister. Um, you know, someone just, you know, for the next you know, 20 years, you know, at every thing I've done subsequently has been has been present there from where we are today at MSNBC to the Bush White House to the John McCain campaign, you know, to the aftermath of the debacle and the feud with Sarah Palin and and all of it. And, yeah. you know, it was a it was a relationship that's as close as any I have in my life. And, you know, I'm always grateful that, you know, my life intersected with hers in California in that year. You just basically summarized what I have to cover with you uh, here, plus where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also reminded me of something that I missed when we were talking about your childhood, uh, and that's your sister, uh, your, your, your sister who is gay. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, and and was that a, a known fact in your household? Was that a how did how did you? Well, my, a- when my sister finally came out, um, no one in my family fell out of their chair, and nobody cared. How old was she? Now, you? my sister had been married, divorced, and then came out. I see. And you look back at the time and the culture and that Catholic culture, Northern New Jersey, where very much, you know, let's say you're at a family friend's place, you know, there'd be that's uncle Tony and Tony's friend, Fred. (laughs) And right. It was not something that was ever spoken aloud of. Um, and not something that, um, you thought much about if if I was twenty two years old and you had hooked me up to a polygraph and said, "Have you ever met a gay person?" Honest to God, I would have answered no, which is of course looking back on it, not absurd. true. Yeah. It's absurd, right? And um, you know, over time and on these issues, um, and we talk about the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the Republican Party of the North and the West. And the Republican Party, which was founded in 1854, by 1858 is the majority party in the North and the West. On the day that LBJ signs the Civil Rights Act, there's three elected Republicans south of the Mason-Dixon line. What's true, and we talked about this today at the Schwarzenegger event, we talk about the dysfunction in American politics, but one of the things that's changed in, in the era that I grew up in there were no shortage of legitimate conservatives in the Democratic Party. There was no shortage of legitimate liberals in the Republican Party. Neither party was ideologically homogenous. Neither party was regionally homogenous. So 
in the northeast of the country, the tradition of the Republican Party wasn't that it was an ideologically conservative party. It was in many ways just as liberal from a policy perspective yeah. of the Democratic Party, but it was the good government party. It was the anti-corruption uh, party. It was the anti-Tammany party. When I was, it was 10 the years old, party. when I was 10 years old, I volunteered for John Lindsay. Right, of course. Who was, ran against Tammany Hall uh, or the, the remnants of it the, in New York for mayor. I went over to the Liberal Party headquarters and worked for him because he were, ran on different lines, but he was the Republican candidate. Nelson Rockefeller, I, I tried to work for him. They didn't have anything for me to do as an 11-year-old, so they just let me meet Jackie Robinson, which was pretty cool, who was working for Nelson Rockefeller. But you're right, you know. In fact, when you were just coming of age was when Clifford Case, who was a great uh, moderate from New Jersey, lost, and Jacob Javits in New York across uh, the river lost and uh, Brooke lost and you know the whole range of uh, moderate Republicans vanished uh, from the scene just as uh, you said Republicans and, taking hold in the South and Dem conservative Democrats. So over and over my career, right, you see this migration. This the Republican Party. The migration begins in '64. It's certainly completed by '88. But it's really manifested culturally in the 90s in the Gingrich Revolution. And there was this debate that was proximate to the end of the Vietnam War. When people would say the United States has never lost a war. And thus the pain of the Vietnam War was a war we lost. But people would argue and they say, well, we were never defeated on the battlefields. The military didn't lose the war. The American military did. The politicians did. We were on the edge of victory if we kept winning. But that's not true, that the country's never lost, in a, lost a war. It's dependent on what part of the country you live in. If you live in the South, you absolutely lost a war. Yeah. You were conquered. Mm -hmm. You were occupied. You were humiliated. And you were aggrieved. And it's profoundly important to understand the history of the country. We had a discussion earlier today where the conversation begins, is this the most divisive time era, which is a question predicated on an astounding ignorance of American right. history. There was, there was a civil war in this country, yeah. 25 million people in the north, 9 million in the south, 5 million white, 4 million slave, 3 million men under arms, 660,000 killed. It's one of the bloodiest wars right. in history. We're certainly not in 1968. But in order to understand the grievances, the resentments, the sense of victimization, all of these things that Trump is stoking into, you have to understand, I think, uh, the legacy of the Civil War, the legacy of the Civil Rights Movement, the legacy of aggrievement on the part of the South. Now, we're lucky as a country that we're not the Balkans. We're not a sectarian society of revenge and ret retribution. There is no American Pashtun tradition. And we don't want to start one. But it's also true that there are deeply seated resentments and cultural grievances that have always existed in fall lines in the country that manifest themselves to this hour in American politics. Let me, uh, Steve, uh, because um, I, there's so much to touch on. 
just one quick question. You work for Dick Cheney. I did. In the uh, White House. He has, you know, a- an image as a kind of Darth Vader sort of character, um, and he cultivated it in some ways um, with his uh, with his brashness, but the sense that he was the guy, you know, he kind of pushed Bush uh, on Iraq and that he yeah. really ran the administration and so on. What was your experience with Cheney? I think that Dick Cheney is someone who's very similar to Hillary Clinton in this regard. They're real people who exist in the American consciousness as caricatures, almost as cartoon figures. What's true is this. It's exceedingly difficult to find anybody over a very long public career who's worked intimately with Hillary Clinton or with Dick Cheney who will ever say anything bad about them as a person. He was among the kindest, most considerate people I've ever had an opportunity to work for. He was utterly normal, fiercely convicted. He's someone I've stayed in touch with. And you were what, a communications guy. I, well, I was knew that. counselor to the vice president. And um, you, he, uh, you know, when I was double-hatted, I had a White House title, I had a presidential title, vice presidential title. And um, it was never true that Dick Cheney was running the White House. George W. Bush ran the White House. He was the president of the United States. It wasn't a partnership. It wasn't a junior partnership. Um, But he played an important role in the administration. Now, there are many, many issues with which I disagree with Dick Cheney on. And when I have occasion to see him, you can sit and talk about your disagreement with no rancor, no malice. But, But I'll tell you this for sure. For some period of time, On September 11th, Dick Cheney believed that he gave an order that resulted in the shooting down of an American passenger airliner, killing hundreds of Americans to save a target in Washington, D.C., whether it was the White House or whether it was the Capitol. And I think Dick Cheney went to bed that night, and he said this will never, ever, ever happen again not on our watch. You can agree with Dick Cheney's decisions. You can disagree with Dick Cheney's decisions. You can even look back on them and say, well, in wartime, whether it was FDR's decision to intern Japanese Americans, that in wartime, there are always abuses of our values. There are always abuses of our liberties in the name of security, and that the healthiness of the democracy over time deals with that. We come to the conclusion that the internment of the Japanese were wrong, that the torture regime was wrong, that we don't want to do that again, that, that the security under which those actions were taken is not worth the compromise to our ideals. But, so but Dick Cheney, interrogation of techniques. course, but, but Dick Cheney absolutely... 100% believes and believed everything he did was in the national security interest of the United States and it was the right thing to do. He was an honest man uh, who did 
what he thought was right. And in all of my career, when politicians say, I don't care about the polls, there's truly only one person I've ever met who profoundly didn't give a shit about what the polling numbers said. And he had the polling to prove it. And he had the polling to prove it, and it was Dick Cheney. I was in the limo with him in San Francisco, the streets lined with people giving him the middle finger. And I looked out the window, I looked back at him, and I said, sir, I said, I don't think you should listen to the polls. Look at all those people saying you're number one. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, jump ahead to uh, 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a, I, on the other side, understood when you got involved in there that there was a profound kind of shift in that campaign. And you made the summer of 2008 more interesting than I hoped it would be. We were in Europe and we had 250,000 people in the uh, tear garden and you uh, turned it into a commercial and, uh, uh, and, 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 and struck a chord that we were sensitive to, which was he hadn't been elected yet and exactly what, what, why were they there. And I mean, they were there for hope, but uh, and you jaked us actually into pulling down our big rallies. We got intimidated about maybe we were too ostentatious about our crowds and stuff um, until you started drawing them with Sarah Palin. But on the decision, and I know you've answered this question a million times, but, um, you know, I draw a pretty straight line, and you heard me today on this, from Sarah Palin and some of the f things that she unleashed uh, in that fall of 2008 uh, to Donald Trump and Trumpism. Palinism to me was, Trumpism is a, is a kind of extension of what was Palinism. Uh, and uh, you recommended her to John McCain. He, in his final days, um, said that he regretted not having picked someone else. But how do you reflect on that decision? Well, I've talked some about it. Um, I just did a podcast with Katie Couric, and I talked more expansively about it right. than I that I have in the past. And um, you know, part of the rupture of my relationship with John McCain was that in the aftermath of the campaign, I thought it was vital, urgent, and necessary to warn the country about the danger that she presented, that the nationalism, the populism, the know-nothingness that she represented that I saw begin and manifest on the campaign. And John, of course, had a re-election in 2010. And, and John was a great man, but not above politics. You remember the 2010 campaign, John McCain didn't build mean a, a word fence, of it, yeah. but he said, build the, build the darn wall. Mm -hmm. And if that's what it took to get re-elected, he, he wasn't above doing that. Um, I disagree with you a bit on the linear line that you draw from, from Palin to Trump, and I'll, I'll get to it in a second. But I, I do want to say this, is that when I took over the campaign, um, I was put in charge of everything except for two things, the vice presidential vetting and the vice presidential search, which remained the province of Rick Davis, who was Paul Manafort's longtime partner. And Rick Davis um, was a responsible party to the collapse of the campaign in 2007 when it 
became bankrupt, and it went under. Rick Davis introduced Paul Manafort to Oleg Deripaska. And so within the McCain campaign, there was a pro-Russian faction in Rick Davis, who worked with Manafort on the Yanukovych campaigns, and an anti-Russian faction. So the you think, anti-Russian think because faction Palin was, could see Russia from well, her, uh, well, let me, let that, me, that the, Rick Davis the anti, was the anti, partial to the, her? The anti-Russian faction was John Weaver, myself, uh, Terry Nelson, and, and, and some others. But Rick had the ball on the VP search. We were behind, and we knew that we had to do something disruptive, that we had to come out to have any chance in the election against Barack Obama, who I viewed as the heavyweight champ as we went into the debates. We were never going to get the decision. We had to knock him out. Our best chance to knock Obama out in a debate was obviously going to be on a national security front, not a domestic policy front where we were deficient against Senator Obama's, Senator Obama's skills. My idea was that John McCain was going to go out and say, I put the uniform of my country on when I was 17 years old, and I've spent every hour of my adult life in service to it. If the American people so honor me with it, I have one last mission. And I've asked a great patriot, a great Democrat, a great American, Al Gore's running mate, my friend Joe Lieberman, to serve with me. We will unite the country around solving this country's And that's what he said he problems. wanted to do. So why right? didn't and, it happen? And uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you in a second. And what he would have said was, I promised to serve for only four years. We will fix these problems. And what he would have added was this. Barack Obama is a good man. And I think, I know. He'll be president of the United States someday. He surely will. But he's not ready, not quite yet. And I thought we would have a fighting chance with that. What it required was absolute and utter secrecy because we had to jam it through. Nobody would have been happy in the conservative wing of the Republican Party, that someone who was pro-choice, that a Democrat was picked. They didn't like McCain to begin with. But if I jammed it through and I said, here's the choice, Obama or this, and all of you can start fighting about who the true conservative nominee will be four years from now, this is the best deal you're getting. I think we could have gotten it through. What we could not prevail on is a long-term fight about this. And so the secrecy was breached by Lindsey Graham, who went out and floated this to a group of evangelical pastors in a meeting in South Carolina. And within a couple of hours, Sean Hannity, the president, Karl Rove, everybody was on the phone saying this cannot be done. And in fact, it could not, because the rules of the convention meant that any two states could put their own nominee into play. Here's where I disagree with you about Sarah Palin. Well, wait, before you get to where yep. you disagree with me, that didn't happen. Right. You, you didn't object to Sarah Palin. I said, I said, knowing that we had a choice between Romney and Pelleni, and most people forget this, though you will not, 
is that John McCain was asked a question about how many houses he owned. Right. Now, the question was unfair in the sense that there was no expectation to anyone who knew John McCain that he would know the answer of how many houses Cindy owned. He was just not conscious of this stuff. And he was not a person who came from any money, didn't have any money, never saw McCain Hard to with, relate any, to that. with any, with any right. cash. He truly, honest to God, had no idea. But the answer to the question is how many that McCain and Romney had together was 15. And one of them didn't know he owned seven. And so there was no way in the middle of a mortgage crisis that was unfolding that that could be. And Tim Pawlenty, then and now, and you look at his performance in the 2012 race, right? He was just a great guy, but his flavor was diet vanilla Breyer's ice cream. Mm -hmm. Tasteless. And what I said was, I don't know much about her, but the most popular governor by polling in a state is Palin in Alaska, who's 85%. She's taken on the oil companies up there, taken on the corruption. She's in a feud with all these guys like Ted Stevens and Don Young that McCain hates and thinks is thinks are totally corrupt. We ought to take a look at her. I also said in that moment in time to Rick Davis, she has to be fully and completely vetted. To this day, the people in charge of vetting her insist the vet was full. That's it was what they, complete. They do. And it was well done. And I sit here 10 years later and I say, holy shit. How could the vet have been complete and well done if three days after we pick her, I find out she doesn't know where Iraq and Afghanistan are on a map. She doesn't know that Iraq didn't attack us on 9-11. In fact, it was bin Laden and al-Qaeda hidden by the Taliban. And it was just extraordinary. I don't want to be contentious about this because I know that this is something that... That, that that you probably think about a lot and that we, we all have things that are going to be mm-hmm. in our uh, in our obituaries this will yes. probably be in yours but um, it thrills me to death <laughs> <laughs> but um, when uh, we were considering vice presidential nominees that year at the end and David Pluff probably told you this he and I got on a plane and in one day we visited the final finalists and you know we had two hour conversations with each of them did you have uh that kind of conversation with sarah palin i didn't and um what a mistake it was i there's there's yeah i'll I'll tell you the thing that um that i'll regret if i live to be 110 years old I'll, i'll i'll regret it to the end of my days first thing um and i was 37 years old and now looking back from 48, at 37, I didn't think I had too much more to learn. Um, but at 48, I realized I was foolish at 37 for thinking well, that. A, I'm not young um, enough to know everything, you know, the old expression. The, I stayed in my lane because I had taken all of Davis's responsibilities when he was relieved of them then it was in the interest of the campaign for there to be some functionality in the relationship. And the best way to achieve that functionality was to let him maintain his dignity, having been stripped of all responsibilities except for these two, and I was hands off. Now, the lesson learned is this. If you're put in charge of something, you're either all the way in charge of it 
or you're not in charge at all. There's no such thing as being in charge but for these two things. The second thing that I'll regret to the end of my days is when Palin rolls in to the ranch in Sedona and McCain says to Mark Salter and I, his longtime chief of staff, yeah. he says, come on, boys, let's go talk to her. And I said to him, it's completely inappropriate for us to be in this meeting. You must meet with her alone. You have to take her measure. You have to make a decision if she is prepared, she's ready, she's qualified to take the oath of office should you become incapacitated or dead or cannot fulfill your constitutional responsibilities. Is she ready to be the commander-in-chief? They went off for an hour. He came out. No person alive, except for Sarah Palin, knows what was said, what was talked about in that meeting. I wish I did. If I had sat in a meeting where she substantively, substantively had talked about any issue, I would have chained myself to the bumper of the car to prevent her from leaving that compound as the vice presidential nominee. But we, we went for a walk. I've not told this story before. We went for a walk down by the river. It was Cindy, it was Mark Salter, and myself. And McCain goes, Steve, you argue the case for Palin, and Mark, you argue the case for Plenty. And I said, I'm not going to do that. She's high risk, high reward. I said, if we pick Plenty or we pick Romney, for certain, we will not come out of the convention ahead, and we will not have a chance to win. You just took her measure. Is she ready? Do you think that she can do it. And what he said was, she's not ready yet, but she can be. And we talked about it for a minute. Mark Salter, as is quoted in the movie, said there were some things worse than losing, including your reputation, and he was fiercely against it. Cindy said to McCain, it's a crapshoot. And John McCain said, you shouldn't have said that. And he pretended he had a pair of dice in his hands that he was rolling them and he opened his palm, and he said, fuck it, let's do it. And three days later, I found out what I found out, and was appalled by it, was enraged by it, angered by it, depressed by it, and sickened by it. Now, at a psychological level, at a character level, the constant lying, all of it, she was unfit. Nicole Wallace and I were the first two people in America to see this fully. By the end of the campaign, everybody in America saw it. I think you are wrong on drawing a straight line from Palin to Trump because Palin is just one demagogue in a long line that goes back to Father Coughlin, to George Wallace, into a hundred others. Here's what Sarah Palin represents. She represents a moment in time where the suspension of belief is that the suspension of belief about what is in front of your 
knows. What's plainly evident in front of your eyes is not true. She is responsible for nothing in the campaign. The conspiracy that Katie Couric was out to get her, for example. I remember in the aftermath thinking, what was the question that Katie Couric asked her that was out of line? Right. It was illegitimate. Right. Palin is the first professional victim in an era where victimization becomes the lifeblood of the Republican Party, where it becomes virtuous. Trump's not a victim. He's an avenger of the victims. Right, But Palin makes victimization virtuous. And she goes on and she gets a million-dollar contract from Fox News. And not one time ever is a single question ever asked of her to determine whether, in fact, she's the victim of a conspiracy of incompetent campaign advisors, of the media, somebody who was manifestly wronged. Or is she just manifestly incompetent? And so then you go forward to the moment she resigns as governor of Alaska in this spasm of incoherence. And if you were watching this, and this was someone you cared about, you'd want their, and I'm serious as a heart attack when I say this, some level of psychological interdiction. This is a person in distress. This is a person who needs help. I remember saying that, well, now... She's utterly disqualified herself from any consideration to be part of American public life, to be discussed as a possible presidential candidate. And I remember watching the day of her resignation, the Fox panel say, no, no, no. What a potent, powerful force she will be. It, she represents the moment in time where, where belief is suspended where up can be down and down can be up and right can be left sounds like and a, left sounds can like be right. Sounds like a continuum right. to Trump and, to me. And blue can be red and red can be blue. It, Trump's an opportunist who seizes on uh, this moment, uh, but, but, but Palin isn't, isn't the cause. She's not No, no, I, I'm not saying she, she's, she's the cause. She's, I'm she's just saying symptom that I looked at those crowds the at the end of the 2008 campaign and some of the really, really raw things that were were percolating up at those rallies and i look at the trump rallies today and they there is a there is a they are of a piece i am you're absolutely right donald trump is a an a wealthy guy from queens who figured out how to how to exploit this she was she was actually of the matter born she 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 really did culturally philosophically represent the people who Trump is talking to. After, after the economic collapse, when the, the economy goes down, stock market collapses, race is over. I know the race is over September 15th. Yeah. You know the race yes. is over September 15th. Barack Obama is going to be the president. The right track number, 6%. And so we go forward an incredibly... Um, fraught time economically. None of us had any idea what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. You didn't know if there was going to be $20 you could get out of an ATM machine a week from now. It was terrifying. I'm right. sure you were terrified yes. by it as you were, as you were being briefed by it. Um, the rage, the anger, all of it that begins to surface, right? 
McCain was repelled by it. I was repelled by it, right? When you heard Barack Obama's name and then you heard the N-word being shouted in a crowd. And I remember being with John McCain saying, we can't say his name anymore. Because when we say his name, it elicits this nastiness. And it was at the very end we said, when I had this conversation with him, and he's going to be the president. We're going to have to unify the country. We have to end this with dignity. This is appalling. Palin, right, saw that crowd and she fed on the energy of the crowd and its adoration of her as an egotist, which is similar to Trump. She exploited that energy. She wasn't purposely divisive because she was too ignorant to be so. She was just transactionally exploitive. She was drawn to the fame. She heard the cheers and didn't hear the epithets or didn't mind the epithets. She wanted to be a celebrity. The campaign made her famous. Trump was a celebrity who wanted power. And they're not on a straight line in the sense that Palin was a fool, reveling in her ignorance. Trump is far more calculating um, and far more opportunistic and profoundly more dangerous. But all of those elements in the country existed for a long time before Sarah Palin well, there's no, came, listen, came I think, along, I think, right? I mean, I think she, she did not invent it. Trump did not invent it. He is more clever about exploiting it. And as you say, I mean, uh, uh, they're in different categories in that in that regard. Let me ask you one more thing on this, and then I just one last question, and we'll be out because we're running over, but it's an important discussion. Um, on this issue of McCain, you, Nicole Wallace, John Weaver, none of you were invited yeah. to that funeral, and a lot of it had to do with the aftermath and how my sense was about how you guys spoke about this very issue. Were you hurt by that? Oh, deeply. Um, and humiliated. It was um, a celebration of greatness, but as often was the case around John McCain as reality, uh, a celebration of, a, of greatness uh, was an occasion for smallness. Um, John McCain and I had no unfinished business between us. Um, I'm someone who feuded with John McCain, and like many people who feuded with John McCain, I reconciled with John McCain. Um, and the last words John McCain ever said to me were, thank you and I love you, boy. Um, now, the irony for me in it is this. He'd have been the first to tell you he was a deeply imperfect guy. Um, In fact, he, he did tell me that we did a right? we did a TV show, and he was very clear on that. He, he would not have been comfortable with his deification at all. Um, at his best, and there were many times when he was at his best. He more exampled the virtues of courage and selflessness and sacrifice that you want to see in a political leader. And I'm not talking about 
his martial courage. Um, more than any other person that I have met, he was my inspiration to stand up, damn the consequences, and fight for what you believe in and do what you think is the right thing to do. What I thought the right thing to do was, was to talk honestly and openly about her manifest unfitness. I think what John McCain thought the right thing to do was for John McCain to survive the Tea Party wave of 2010 was to shut the hell up and not antagonize Sarah Palin. But in my case, Sarah Palin wrote a book in which I'm the chief villain. And once she did that, I felt that to be silent was to stipulate to the hundreds of lies in the book. And I was unwilling to do that, number one. Now, secondly, as you know, a book is written about the campaign that becomes a bestseller and ultimately a movie. And that book isn't just about the McCain campaign. It's about the 2008 campaign. And you talk to the authors of the book. In fact, they talk to 500 people. I'm just the only person who on the record has acknowledged the obvious, which is, of course, I talk to the authors. But the book and my centrality to it in the movie isn't on the basis that I talk to reporters. It's on the basis that I was central to events. And the authors, the reporters who wrote that book and interviewed hundreds of people reported out what happened in the campaign. And the story of that campaign, the reality of it, and discussion of it in its aftermath is important, is that how she came to be the VP nominee is something that can never, ever be allowed to happen again. There has to be a historical learning and record. And secondly, since the end of that campaign, on every occasion that I have had to be able to talk about the danger of this rising nationalism, of the populism, of the know-nothingness, to express it in its historical context, I have done so. And I don't apologize for it. I don't regret it. And if the cost of warning the country about what was coming and about Sarah Palin was the breach of my relationship with John McCain, as painful as it may have been, I would do it again and again and again and again, the cost sometimes of doing the right thing as you see it, and I'm not saying that I did the right thing. I'm saying that I did the right thing as I see it. Sometimes that cost is high. And the cost of a relationship that was amongst the deepest and most intimate that I'll ever have in my life was a profoundly painful thing, but worth the cost. Let me, let me ask you, um, finally, as we uh, go out, you 
do you expect to be involved in the campaign? And uh, your views on Donald Trump are so ma- are so well known. I don't think we need to explore them here. Uh, do you expect to be involved in the campaign in 2020? You've been linked to to uh, uh, Schultz of uh, of uh, uh, late of Starbucks uh, fame, who may be running uh, in 2020. Do you see yourself? involved in a campaign as strongly as you feel about Donald Trump? Um, I don't know. Now, I guess a year ago, if you asked me, would you ever be involved in one of these again? My answer would have been is that I've been at the highest level of a winning one and the highest level of a losing one. And both outcomes are better than ever being involved in a third one. But, But the truth of the matter is, in this hour in American life, the only way to repudiate this is electorally. And in America, we confront our problems and our challenges at the ballot box. And it's something that I'm more open to than I would have been a year ago, six months ago. It's not something that I have a burning desire to go and do. It's not something that I envision myself um, running. Um, But I could see myself and more likely as a volunteer than uh, a principal architect, but being involved and and, and being involved in an effort um, to renew the promise, the idea and ideals of the country. And um, even if we were in the Democratic, I'm optimistic about our future. I'm optimistic about our future, but but this has to be confronted. And in the in the institution in the country that's going to confront it, that's called to confront it, that's obligated and responsible to confront it, is the Democratic Party, the oldest political party in the world. And and one of the, the great ironies of it, and I really believe this, is that the repudiation of Trumpism through the form of overwhelming Democratic victories. One of the institutions that the Democratic Party may wind up saving in its defeat of Trumpism is the Republican Party itself. I could literally go on for another hour and a half, but uh, we're over already and uh, I have a feeling we're going to be having many more conversations over the next several years. So, Steve Schmidt, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your candor. And I look forward to seeing what you're up to. Absolutely. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.